Please join me in prayer now. Our Lord and our God, as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit and soften our hearts that we may discern your ways. Fill us with your light through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. An epistle reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, the word of the Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rina. Just don't talk about God or politics. It's the universal wisdom of the ages throughout human history is that at Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter family gatherings, there are two topics that must never, ever, ever be brought up under any circumstances, that being religion and politics. There's an awkwardness about looking at the 22nd chapter of Matthew during an election year as feelings of unease and anger and anxiety uh, uh, fill up the hearts of people at every point in the ideological spectrum. I'm going to preach a passage that I last preached in 2016, four years ago at this time, when a different person was in the White House, but we were going into a very contentious election cycle. And I'm going to give you the exact same sermon, even down to the illustrations, because it's still true. Jesus still speaks into how we go about thinking about people in authority, how we go about thinking about our responsibility within a democratic structure, uh, whether there is a Democrat or a Republican in the White House or whoever happens to be the mayor or on the board of aldermen, doesn't really make any difference in what Jesus says. And we're a church that has a wide variety of political perspectives. Um, some of you are Bernie people. Some of you were Hillary people. Some of you were Trump people. Some of you were anybody but people. Some of you were the Mormon guy whose name I can never really remember. Uh, we have people from all over the map. And, and you're even in community groups together. And I see you loving each other. And I see you caring for each other. And I see you looking out for each other. And I see you disagreeing and yet loving and not tearing each other apart. And when I see that, I praise Jesus. That's something that I do not want to ever lose as a church, is that ability of the gospel to bring very diverse people together. I don't see that happening anywhere else in this society as we've gone along tribal lines. It's only in the church that I see lion and the lamb lying down together as a little child leads them. What does Jesus counsel us when we think about God and politics? We're going to read Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. 
as we submit our minds and our hearts and our attitudes to our Savior who loves us and is the true King. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, that is to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's called buttering up. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Jesus tells us two things here. Two things to do. First, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar was the emperor. It's used here not just to refer to the person of the emperor, but it's used to describe the whole civic structure within which the emperor uh, is, is enthroned, uh, everything from emperor to alderwoman to dog catcher to imperial senate member. So what does this mean? Jesus is saying, I want you to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. What's that look like? It looks like a number of things. First, it looks like giving up control. Literally, he's saying, return to Caesar what is already his. Give it back to him. You don't need to control this. You don't have to be in charge. As followers of Jesus, you do not need to be the top of the totem pole. You could be the bottom of the totem pole, influencing not from the top down the way people think of in a politicized culture influence happens, but he's saying, as my followers, I want you free to, to, to be at the bottom, influencing from below by being a servant, by being a slave, by loving people, by sacrificing yourself. You know, he could have boycotted the Roman taxation system. That was part of the trap. If he says, no, don't give it, then they're going to triumph for, tre for treason against Rome. But if he says, do give it, then he's promoting idolatry of, a, of an unjust and corrupt system. And he's saying, he's, he's telling a whole bunch of Jewish people who are subject to a Roman occupation, to keep funding their occupying power. He's saying, I want you to stop as my followers. Stop trying to control everybody. You know, the Christian can be tempted to try to use power to, to, to make people obey outwardly what God says is good. And, and Jesus is saying, I don't want you to use politics as my followers. I want you to stop trying to wrestle for control of the government. Stop trying to force non-Christians to act like Christians. Stop trying to change people from the outside in. I'm not telling you to abdicate your civic responsibility. I'm not telling you to retreat to a compound in Utah and live separately. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, I want you to give up control. That's the government's coin. And when they request it, give it back. 
You aren't going to save the world through your political engineering. Government isn't going to save the world. Yes, where there are victims, I want you to stand with the victims. But don't think you can control everybody. You'll just make them hate you, and with very good reason. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, whether you like what Caesar's going to do with it or not. You don't have to be in control. You can let go. Philip Yancey, in his book Vanishing Grace, writes about his Muslim friend who told him this. He said, I've read the entire Quran and I can find no guidance on how Muslims should live as a minority in society. And I have read the entire New Testament now many times and I can find in it no guidance on how Christians should live as a majority. Yancey comments, Christians best thrive as a minority, as a counterculture. Historically, he writes, when Christians reach a majority, they tend to yield to the temptations of power in ways that undermine the gospel. So giving to Caesar what Caesar's for the Christian, that's giving up control, but it's also giving up money because this was a question about taxation by a corrupt government. Yes, the Romans could be brutal, but as inhabitants of a Roman province, people in Roman Palestine all benefited from Roman rule in some ways. The Romans built roads that enabled the freedom of travel throughout the empire. There was safety in travel throughout much of the empire because of the Roman government. Trade and commerce were fostered by the Pax Romana. They were protected from invading armies. Uh, Roman aqueducts brought them water. Roman baths and latrines provided a basic level of sanitation even within very large and overcrowded cities. The Romans brought criminal justice. It was not perfect criminal justice. It was far from it. But it brought some level of order so that society could flourish. Jesus is saying it's Caesar's right to then turn around and demand that you pay for those services. Whether you're talking about a state government, a local government, or a national government. And this is sometimes challenging for some of us. You know, in 1987, the tax code in the United States was, was rewritten. And uh, you may remember, uh, if your, your memory goes back that far, before 1987, when filling out your taxes, your 1040, you, you, all, all you had to do was list the names of your dependents. But starting in 1987, you had to list the names of your dependents plus their social security number. And in 1987, 7 million American children disappeared. It's possible there were 7 million alien abductions, but it's also possible somebody been cheating on their taxes. Uh, $3 billion in revenue was reclaimed. Romans 13:7, St. Paul says, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. Jesus says, give to Caesar what Caesar's. Giving up control, giving up money, and thirdly, giving honor. Jesus implies that there are certain honors which are due to people in governmental authority, whether they are good in character or whether they're efficient in their job or not. Uh, whether you're talking about the collector of revenue, the mayor of St. Louis, or the speaker of the house. This is a theme repeated throughout the New Testament that God wants to help shape our engagement so that our engagement would look differently from the world around us. Romans 13, Paul says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, the authorities that exist 
have been established by God. You think, who are the authorities that exist? Well, they've included people like Nero and Caligula. I mean, Nero was a monster. Nero burned down Rome while he played the fiddle and then took the Christians and tied them up and impaled them and lit them on fire to light his gardens during his cocktail parties. This is not a good man. But he says, nevertheless, the authority that Nero exercises is the authority derived from the authority of Christ, the authority of God, and therefore his, his office is to be respected. I preached this last time Barack Obama was president. Now there's a different president, but the, the fact of the matter is it has not changed. God is not saying, I want you to like somebody. He is not saying, I want you to vote for somebody. He is not weighing in on articles of impeachment that came after I scheduled this sermon. It's not my fault. But it does mean that the way we talk about people who bear authority as public officials should be tempered by the gospel, uh, regardless of whether the government governs well or poorly, um, regardless of whether Nero is a good guy or not, or whether or not, you know, Marcus Aurelius is a very good emperor. Um, ancient politicians were pretty notorious. You think we've got it bad. The patterns do not change through time. There's a quote that's been attributed falsely probably to Seneca. It probably goes back to Edward Gibbon's rise and fall of the Roman Empire. But the quote uh, in ancient Rome was this, the masses consider all religions equally true. The philosophers consider all religions equally false. The politicians consider all religions equally useful. Think of Peter and Paul during this time, what they sacrificed. They would ultimately both be put to death by Emperor Nero. Think of Caligula, what a horrible guy he was. You say, but, but, and, and so as Christians at the bottom of the totem pole, where does that leave us? Well, it certainly leaves us to engage uh, civilly, uh, but to do it civilly. Um, you know, to engage in, in these matters, but to do so tempered by grace with love and respect. You know, there's a need whenever you're dealing with somebody in authority to say, okay, you know, uh, whether it's, it's a Congress making a decision or the courts making a decision or the mayor or the board of aldermen making a decision, there's a time where I as a citizen have to say, okay, this decision was not mine. I don't like this decision. If I had a vote, I would have voted differently. And I may vote differently next time when my alder person comes up for vote. But this was not my decision to make. And so I'm okay with it. And so I can let go. The father of Methodism, John Wesley, gave advice during an election year. The year was 1774. And his advice was this. He writes, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election. And I advised them, firstly, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Secondly, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And thirdly, to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Jesus says, I want you to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And yet, at the same point, 
Jesus does limit this obligation to those things which rightly belong to the authority of civil government. He's not saying sell your soul if the government says to do so. He's not saying if the Nazis show up at your door and say, where are the Jewish people? Tell them they're up in the attic, here's the key. That's not what he's saying. You know, there are times in the Bible where government goes beyond its authority or any authority, even family authority, whatever, goes beyond and where disobedience is actually then sanctioned. I think, for example, of Rahab, the prostitute, who was blessed and praised by God precisely because she was treasonous to a corrupt government and sided instead with God over against them. I think of the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus who were recorded when Pharaoh told them to murder all the little baby Jewish boys. They said no. They, and, and, well, actually, they didn't say no. They said sure, and they smiled, their, their happiest smile, and then they didn't do it, and then they lied about it, and they're blessed and praised because they lied about it and because they didn't do it because God's laws are higher, and the government doesn't have authority to call upon you to kill people. Uh, think of Abigail and the wife of Nabal, the fool, who, who betrayed her husband to be faithful to God. You think of the apostles in the book of Acts who when the, the Jewish Sanhedrin ordered them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, they said, judge for yourselves whether it is right for us to obey you rather than God. Government has limited authority. And there are certainly, you know, biblical pointers, uh, uh, which you can get into in terms of what government should be focused on, but things like ensuring equal opportunity and justice, a fair criminal justice system, prohibiting favoritism, public health, safety, sanitation, and national defense, all those things, looking out for the widow and the orphan and the stranger among us, those things are praised so highly in the Mosaic Law. And government has authority to tax in order to fund this agenda. So what Jesus is telling us here is to have the right heart as we engage in politics to vote and to participate and, and think and talk about people in government with grace and with charity and with humility, whether you like them or not, whether you're going to vote for them or vote against them, to let the gospel shape this sphere. Um, I have a slide. This is a letter. Can we get that first picture? Um, this is a letter. Uh, I'll read it to you. It's a letter that George Herbert Walker Bush left on his desk in the Oval Office on the day he was stepping down as president, he left it for uh, Bill Clinton. It's signed January 20th, 1993. He writes, Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know that you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times, made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish you, your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. Think about it. A president who's about to become a private citizen, writing to the man who would replace him as president, saying, Bill, you know I voted against you, but I love you. 
and I will be rooting for you as you fulfill the very weighty duties of this office. Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. But there's a second point that Jesus makes, and that's to render unto God that which is God's. What does it mean to render unto God that which is God's? First and foremost, it means offering God supreme and absolute allegiance. You might not have picked up on the rebuke that Jesus is giving to his critics here, but these men are presumably still in the temple precincts. He asked to see a coin, and they have one. And I want you to realize what was on that coin. It was a Roman denarius. There's some uh, difference of opinion about exactly which coin this was. There are three contenders, but it was probably this one. Um, you see on the left, uh, it says uh, Tiberius Caesar uh, Divi. Uh, uh, that's uh, A-U-G, Augustus, uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine or the god Augustus. And on the back, on the right, um, it says Pontifex Maximus. Um, so here's what this says, carrying this around in the temple courts. Tiberius Caesar, the son of the great god Augustus. And then on the back, that's Tiberius's mom, Livia, he had mommy issues. She's dressed up as the goddess Pox or Peace. And it says that Tiberius, the emperor, is the great high priest. So just to get this straight, let me repeat. Jewish leaders are hanging around in the temple of Yahweh, carrying around a graven image of a Roman emperor, which says it's the image of the son of God, the emperor who is also the great high priest, and his mom who is a goddess. Blimey. That's a rebuke. If you were giving God what is God's, you would not have carried that thing into the temple courts. Your allegiance to the Lord seems lacking. This means giving allegiance instead to God. And this gets into issues of, of where you, you build your primary core identity. If you build your core identity on a political self-categorization, um, you know that's going to have an effect because then you're going to start breaking fellowship with your sisters and brothers in Christ. You're going to start being critical and divisive. You're going to become angry when you don't get your way. You're going to be angry when you do get your way. But if you build your identity on God and on the gospel, that undercuts all of that pride and all of that political self-righteousness that we have when we love to denounce other people who are wrong. Uh, it gives us instead empathy and love because when I realize I'm the biggest sinner in the room, I don't have a platform from which to judge anybody but myself. I can disagree lovingly, respectfully. It's why our denomination was not named the Presbyterian Church of America because it's not America's Presbyterian Church. It's the Lord Jesus' Presbyterian Church that happens to be in America as its geographic location. It's an issue of priorities, where you find your core identity, what you build your life on, and Jesus is calling us to a life of intentional sacrifice for the glory of God, a readiness to do anything, a readiness to go anywhere, whatever he wants with no fine print, no footnotes, no reservations, and no exceptions, a willingness to say yes to God first because uh, he's the one who calls us to render unto God that which is God's. So how is that possible? Well, Jesus realized was telling his followers to fund 
his own execution. Jesus was on his way to a cross, a cross that was part of a larger Roman political exercise of subjugating any enemy to Roman rule. It was the Romans who would kill him, funded by the very taxes that these people were being called by Jesus himself to fund. He's saying, I want you to fund my execution. And when that kind of grace sinks in, we become the least offended people on the planet because you have no self-righteousness from which to be offended. Tim Keller was asked, I remember it was an event here in St. Louis years ago, he was asked what difference the gospel makes in politics. And he talked about how in his church, not all that different from this church, there are Republicans, there are Democrats, probably a roughly equal number, hard to say without a poll, and we're not going to do that. Um, but uh, he said the thing that he noticed most is not when people became Christians and countered the gospel, it's not that the Republicans became Democrats or the Democrats became Republicans, but that the Democrats and the Republicans alike became more willing to reach across the aisle to focus on the common good. They weren't looking to lob rhetorical bombshells at enemies to make their enemies look bad. They weren't trying any longer to prove a point. When you're a justified sinner, you don't need to make a statement or prove a point about anyone in order to be someone. Jesus already did all that for you. You're already validated. So you can instead work on bringing people together, finding common cause, compromising and making partial, imperfect steps toward a more just social order instead of being strident and demanding that everything happen knowing that it means that nothing will change. It takes yourself out of the equation and enables you to instead humbly and honestly act in love, trying to build consensus. See, the gospel frees us up to see and own our own shortcomings and to see the goodness in our opponents. You know, can you name, I'll just ask you, uh, Democrats, those of you who are more socially and politically progressive, can you name five positive things about your conservative sisters and brothers? And those of you on the right, I'm going to ask the same question to you. Can you name five positive things about your more uh, liberal sisters and brothers in Jesus? It shouldn't be hard if you're focused on loving your enemy. That means your opponent then you should be noticing what's right in them. They're still made in God's image, even if the image is shattered. They still have common grace, even if you disagree with them on every single policy point. They still have values that are biblical values because they're still flowing from the image of God, and they're still wrong about a whole lot of stuff too, because we all are. But you should be able to say of your conservative brothers, you know, and, and of your liberal brothers politically, that... that that they're valuable things. You should be able to say, you know, conservatives really value the nuclear family, just like Jesus. You know, progressives really value the poor, just like Jesus. Conservatives really value the unborn, just like Jesus. Liberals really value racial justice, just like Jesus. Conservatives really value the rule of law, just like Jesus. Liberals really value the immigrant and the migrant, just like Jesus. Conservatives really value hard work, just like Jesus. Liberals really value including people who are different, just like Jesus. 
Conservatives really value personal responsibility, just like Jesus. Progressives really value biblical solidarity and our mutual responsibility for one another, just like Jesus. Conservatives understand that government is not the Savior, just like Jesus. It shouldn't be hard, friends. Even if you think that your opponent's policy proposals will actually undermine the values that they actually hold dear. This is a biblical vision. It's a subversive vision. A vision for, for civic engagement that fights not over the crown, but fights over the towel. Scott Saul says it this way. He talks about moving away from the moral majority thinking and instead embracing, embracing our Christian identity as a standout, life-giving minority devoted to the common good. He writes, we should embrace all the virtues of leftward politics and all the virtues of rightward politics and dismiss the vices of them both. The gospel calls us to a greater thoughtfulness than partisanship provides. And this means thinking of ourselves as beneath our opponents, beneath our neighbors, as their servants, as their staff, Republicans, do you understand that God has appointed you to be a staff person to your Democratic brother and sister in Jesus, not as their Lord? Democrats, do you understand that the Lord Jesus has called you to be a servant washing the feet of your Republican sister or brother in Jesus? Will you, will you allow this to flavor your social media presence? Will you allow this to flavor how you talk, how you disagree, how you argue even? to allow the gospel as Jesus is beneath you, washing your feet so that you can go and do likewise, being the church, the family of Jesus, the life-giving minority within a culture that desperately needs the gospel. See, Jesus did this for you. He's the one who got down and washed your feet. Go back to that coin and you, you have the image in your head. The one with the Son of God on one side and the great high priest on the other. Jesus endured Caesar's hypocrisy and his violence. Caesar was a charlatan pretending to be the great high priest. Pretending to be the Son of God. And yet Jesus endured that all the way to the cross in order to rescue us and change us and shape us to be a people who are known by our love, the true Son of God offering Himself as high priest and sacrifice, wearing a crown of thorns instead of the crown of a king, leading not the way that Gentiles lead from above, but leading as a servant. He is the one. Jesus, more than anyone else, is the one who has shaped my life who has changed me, who has broken me, and who has rebuilt me. And he did not do it by standing above me as Lord, even though he is that. He did it. He changed me by putting himself beneath me as my servant and dying in my place. He saved me by loving me. And that's the power of God to change that is more powerful than any governmental official will ever be able to. To accomplish. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven on earth, from, from divine judge to emperor to your local dog catcher, is derived and dependent upon the authority of Jesus Christ. In 2009, there was an article in the Washington Post about a woman named Emma Daniel Gray We've got a photo of her. Can we get that last photo? It's her on the left. 
with um, one of her favorite presidents, Jimmy Carter, on the right. The article writes this. Each night for 24 years, Emma Daniel Gray would diligently clean the White House. When she became the president's chair, when she came to the president's chair in the Oval Office, every night she would pause, cleaning materials in her hand, and say a quick prayer to Jesus. The prayers asked for blessings, for wisdom, for safety, for each of the six presidents that she served. Mrs. Gray took great pride in her work, traveling each day by bus from her northwest D.C. home to the residence of one of the most powerful men on the planet. She worked nights. She worked the executive offices. Her official title was charwoman from the time she started with the government in 1943 under FDR until her retirement in 1979. In 1955, she was transferred to the White House under President Eisenhower because of her work habits, but it wasn't just her work, it was also her character. That nightly pause for prayer was in keeping with the habits of a lifetime. A member of Holy Trinity Worship Center International in Washington, D.C., she, quote, loved President Carter because she felt he prayed a lot, her daughter said, and she treasured a photograph of her shaking hands with him as well as an autographed picture of her with Rosalind. Her daughter said this, she was a lady, she was a Christian lady. Her pastor said he agreed, quote, she saw life through the eyes of promise in the way I'd put it, uh, uh, he added, you can always look around and find reasons to be unhappy, but you couldn't be around her with, and not know that she believed in Jesus. She always believed. And there was a higher power to grab onto, a God that would lift you above any circumstance, and she was always able to do that. Emma Daniel was born April 16, 1914, in Edgefield, South Carolina, she was raised by her grandfather who had been a slave. She said this, My grandpa was sold three times. He paid his boss's son 20 cents to teach him how to read. And when he could read, he loved the Ten Commandments so much that people in town began calling him Uncle Ten. When Mrs. Gray would visit her hometown, residents would usually ask, Aren't you Uncle Ten's granddaughter? She learned early on, that you set the tone for your environment. It was said of her this, that's why church was so important to her. She understood it to be that kind of institution that was conducive to what you needed spiritually, emotionally, and even financially. She preached her own eulogy by the life that she lived. In August of 1955, when 14-year-old Emmett Till was murdered by two white men, Emma Daniel Gray put her hand on the back of President Eisenhower's chair and she prayed to her Lord Jesus. When Rosa Parks refused to leave her chair on a bus, Emma Daniel Gray put her hand on the chair of the President of the United States and she prayed to her Lord Jesus. When the Cuban Revolution came in 1959, her hand was on the chair of the President praying. In 1961, while the Berlin Wall was being built, her hand was praying for her president. At the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis the following year, her hand was on the president's 
chair and she was praying and crying out to her Lord Jesus. When James Meredith was admitted to the segregated University of Mississippi in 1963, uh, she was there praying uh, that year when she learned that President Kennedy would not be returning from Dallas. Her hand was on the chair and she was crying out in prayer for her president. In 1964, as the Civil Rights Act was being debated, she was praying in the Oval Office to Jesus. Throughout the turbulent years of war in Vietnam, she was praying. In 1968, at the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., she was praying for the President of the United States. In 1972, when terrorist attacks rocked the Munich Olympics, she was praying for the President of her country. During the Watergate scandal, she was praying for her President, to her Lord Jesus. During the Iran hostage crisis in 1979, her hand was on the throne and she was praying to her Lord Jesus. Her hand was continually on the throne. Hers was the voice of intercession calling on her God to come in the name of Jesus for Republican or for Democrat, for conservative or for liberal. Emma Daniel Gray knew she had a Savior. She had a Savior named Jesus. She talked to her Savior Jesus, invisible and unnoticed, Emma Daniel Gray changed the world. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we cry to you in that powerful name of Jesus. We cry out to you, Lord, that you would hear our prayers for all those in authority and that you would guide this country in an election year and above all, that you would guide us as your church in being that counterculture of love, that life-giving minority who demonstrate to the world how to agree and disagree with love and humility and respect and honor. We consecrate to you the elements of this table, Lord, because we are sinners needing cleansing and the blood of Jesus can cleanse us all. Weave us together as your church, Lord, conservative and liberal, Republican, Democrat, Independent, all of us, Lord, that we might be your family and reflect your love and that we might fight not over the crown but over the towel as you, Lord Jesus, wash our feet. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.